0: Please be seated. <coughs> Good morning, church family. And welcome to week one of our study of 1 John. As I shared last week, we as a church body are going to take the next 20 or so weeks to study our way through John's first epistle. Now, the reason I prayerfully selected 1 John is really quite simple, It's because John, he wants his readers to get Jesus Christ correct. He wants his readers to know who Jesus Christ is, the natures that Jesus Christ possesses, the work that Jesus Christ accomplished, and the assurance that Jesus Christ offers. Now, you don't need me to tell you this, church, but getting Jesus Christ correct, it is vital. Because what we believe What we love, what we desire, it will ultimately determine our attitude, our actions, and our thoughts. I read a joke this week about an elderly man who was coming to the end of his life. But death's agony was suddenly pushed aside when he smelled the aroma of his favorite homemade chocolate chip cookies wafting through the air. Gathering all the strength he had, he lifted himself from his bed, and leaning against the wall, he made his way out of the bedroom, down the stairs, and into the kitchen. And there, spread out on the table, were literally hundreds of his favorite chocolate chip cookies. Was he in heaven, or was this one final act of love from his devoted wife, seeing to it that he left this world a happy man? Mustering one last final effort, he threw himself toward the table and grabbed a cookie. And when he took a bite, the taste of the warm, soft dough actually made the pain in his bones go away for a moment, seemingly bringing him back to life. So he reached for another cookie. But then a sudden sting caused his hand to recoil. He looked up and saw his wife still holding the spatula she used to smack him. "'Stay away from those cookies,' she said. "'They're for your funeral.'" I mean, if chocolate chip cookies can impact our actions and deeds this much while being on our deathbed, how much more, then, should a true understanding of Jesus Christ? And that is John's goal here. It is for his readers to get Jesus Christ correct. Because if we as Christians possess the right beliefs, the right respect for Jesus Christ, and demonstrate the right love for Jesus Christ then naturally Christ will transform our devotion and our obedience to the word of God and our fellowship and love toward each other. Which takes us to our thesis this morning, church, or the main points that we will be looking at in our sermon. Our thesis statement this morning is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only one who offers eternal life. This is the message we proclaim, this is the message we ground our fellowship in, and this is the message that completes our joy. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only one who offers eternal life. This is the message we proclaim, this is the message we ground our fellowship in, and this is the message that completes our joy. And our text this morning is 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 let me highly recommend you open your Bibles this morning and turn to the text, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle John, he writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. Lord, we thank you for this day, a day where we, as the church, can gather together and fellowship with each other, and the staple of that fellowship is worshiping you, God. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and his redemptive work on the cross, as Jesus Christ is the only one who offers the assurance of eternal life. Lord, I pray that you open the eyes of these dear ones this morning. Open their ears, soften their hearts to receive the beauty of your word this morning, Father. That it is only through Jesus Christ that we have eternal life. That is the message that we proclaim to the world. That is the message that grounds us in fellowship with you and with each other. And that is the message that gives us joy. Strengthen our joy in that this morning. Father, I pray that you help my lisping, stammering tongue as well. Give me the words to speak this morning to glorify you. Father, if I look like a fool in the eyes of man, and it brings repentance this morning for your glory, so be it. I pray you work through me. Let me be bold. Let me be convicted. Let me be humble. But let me share truth with this dear flock this morning, I pray. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now before we get to the sermon's two main points this morning, I first want to take a moment to share some background and offer some context on the book. So in terms of the authorship of 1 John, it seems most reasonable to agree with the predominant Christian view that has been held for the past 2,000 years. That being that 1 John was written by the same author who wrote The Gospel of John, which is the Apostle John, or John the son of Zebedee. And the reason why there is so much confidence in the notion that the author who wrote 1 John is also the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John is because their theological themes, the language used, and the grammatical style of both books are very, very, very similar. Furthermore... Church history also seems to affirm that the Apostle John is the author of 1 John due to the fact that the church father, Irenaeus, quoted from 1 John and cited the Apostle John as the author. Now, why is that important? Well, because Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. And why is that important? Well, because Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. So Polycarp would have had first-hand knowledge of what the Apostle John actually wrote and what he didn't write, and would have almost assuredly passed that information on to his disciples, one being Irenaeus. Therefore, we will study 1 John through the lens of its proper author, the Apostle John, or John the son of Zebedee. Now, you might be wondering... Why is figuring out the author of 1 John so important? And the answer is because it helps us put into proper context the where, the when, and what was taking place when the Apostle John wrote this letter. Such as the Apostle John was likely in Ephesus during the latter part of the first century, approximately 80 to 95 AD, when he wrote this letter. And he was likely part of a community of believers that were part of a larger grouping of churches throughout Ephesus and possibly throughout Asia Minor. Now, before John wrote 1 John, John wrote his gospel, or what we know as the gospel of John. Why? Well, for the purpose being John twenty thirty one, it says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. However, John, after John wrote his gospel, guess what happened? There were people in these community churches that denied and rejected what John wrote about Jesus Christ. Apparently, they denied that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, 1 John 4-2, and that it was the shedding of Jesus' blood or the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that cleanses man of their sin and leads to eternal life, 1 John 5-6. Thus, because of those denials, they left the church. But as is often the case, they didn't go quietly or peaceably. Instead, they did the next most logical thing. They formed a gang of heretical teachers and preachers and went around to all the churches in this community and tried to deceive them and confuse them and convert them over to their heretical beliefs. Really, it is a tale as old as time. Thus confusion and concern and doubt breaks out within these different Christian communities. As they are hearing over and over and over again from these haughty and egotistical false teachers that this Jesus, the one in whom they put their faith in, was not really God in the flesh. And with that, the Apostle John, he has had enough Of these false teachers. He has had enough of their malarkey. He has had enough of their absurdities concerning the nature and the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. So he writes 1 John to these community churches in Ephesus and potentially throughout Asia Minor so, 1 John 5, 13, that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John writes this letter so that his confused and perplexed and maybe even now Skeptical readers know that through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, their salvation, it is secure, and that they have eternal life, no matter what these heretics who have left the church have to say. Which takes us now to point number one. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is truly God and truly man. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is truly God and truly man. Verses one and two. By proclaiming here in verse 1, that which was from the beginning. Now what is that which was from the beginning? John is making reference here to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is divine, who is eternal, and who is from the beginning. This is the focus of John's prologue in his gospel, where he wrote, in the beginning was the word, Jesus And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Thus, one who is eternal, he must be divine. And since Jesus is eternal, and from the beginning, Jesus then, he must be divine and truly be the Son of God. However, whereas the prologue of John's Gospel focuses more so on the deity of Jesus Christ, or the fact that Jesus is truly God, The prologue of 1 John instead focuses more so on the fact that God, who is eternal, he broke into the world, into time, into space, and took on human flesh, made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that so important to know? Well, because what John was dealing with here was what many theologians consider to be the infancy of Gnosticism. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the phrase Gnosticism, as brief as I can possibly be, the Gnostics believed that the physical world, or that all things that were made of matter, including the flesh, that they were evil, or that they were bad. And that all that was spiritual, or all that was spirit, was good. Thus, because of this understanding, the false teachers in which John is dealing with, they rejected the idea that God, who is eternal, broke into the world and that he took on human flesh. So what is ultimately at stake here is the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, or that the word Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. Thus, the Apostle John sets out here to showcase that the word Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he most certainly took on human flesh and made his dwelling among us. So John says in verse 1 to his readers, concerning the word of life, concerning Jesus Christ, the one who is from the beginning, this is how we know that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Verse 1, we have heard We have seen with our eyes, we looked upon, and we have touched with our hands. John uses very empirical, very experiential language here in verse 1, and really throughout his prologue, to prove to his readers that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And what he's saying here, in essence, is that we, the apostles, the 12 of us, we were all eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ and of his ministry for three years. And based on all the first-hand evidence that we have gathered, we've concluded without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Now, what exactly is the evidence that we, the apostles, base that claim on? John says, we heard Jesus Christ in the flesh. We heard him preach, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We heard him predict his own death, saying the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And we heard him as he hung on a cross to fulfill the scriptures, say as a beaten man, I thirst. But oh, we not only heard Jesus Christ, we, the apostles, we saw him with our own two eyes. We saw him feed the 5,000. We saw him heal the sick we saw him give sight to the blind rest to the weary and forgiveness to the sinner we also saw Jesus seized in the garden of Gethsemane we saw him nailed to a cross and die we saw Jesus experience death as would any other man But we saw the empty tomb. We saw the resurrected Jesus. We saw him raised from the dead. Don't believe us? Then let me tell you what we touched with our hands. We touched the very nail-pierced hands and the hole in the side of the resurrected Jesus Christ in the flesh. John is saying, I know you false teachers think Jesus Christ is not God in the flesh, but I actually heard Jesus Christ in the flesh. I've seen Jesus Christ in the flesh, and I've touched Jesus Christ in the flesh, and I've concluded without a shadow of a doubt, verse 2, that the life was made manifest. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one who is the fountain of life, the one who offers eternal life, the Son of God, he was truly made visible to us in the flesh, in the person, of Jesus Christ. And you may be sitting there this morning thinking, okay, so what? So what John believes that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, that Jesus is God in the flesh? So what? I mean, it's obvious that the Apostle John was a simple man. I mean, he lived before enlightenment and most certainly did not have the education needed to make such a declaration. So why should I trust what the Apostle John has to say? As David Burgess argues, let us remember that education and training are no more necessary for the Christian witness than they are for the witness in a courtroom. People are not called to the witness stand because they have the special training needed or the education needed to be doctors or professors of ancient history. They are called because they have seen and experienced something that is vital to the case that is being tried. Church, John witnessed firsthand the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of what he witnessed, because of what he experienced, because of what he heard and saw and touched. John says, Christian, you can take it to the bank that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Verse 2, from the Father and made manifest to us. But this confidence, church, this joy, this truth that John intimately knows and believes in, it's a truth that he doesn't just want to keep to himself. It's a truth that he doesn't just want to sit on and ponder individually and experience independently of anyone else. Instead, point number two, confidence in Jesus Christ leads to a life of proclaiming the gospel, fellowship grounded in the gospel, and a joy that finds itself complete in the gospel. Confidence in Jesus Christ leads to a life of proclaiming the gospel, fellowship grounded in the gospel, and a joy that finds itself complete in the gospel. Verses three and four. It says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You see, John just can't help himself here in verse 3. Since he has seen, since he has heard, since he has touched the very Son of God, Jesus Christ in the flesh, John wants to take action. He wants to proclaim. He wants to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ to all those who did not have the opportunity to hear Christ in the flesh or see Christ in the flesh or touch Jesus Christ in the flesh so that they too can know the truth about Jesus Christ as the only one who offers eternal life. Let me ask this question this morning, church. Do you? Do you desire to proclaim the truth that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God? Do you desire to proclaim the truth that Jesus Christ is the only one who offers eternal life? And do you desire to proclaim these truths to those who are unregenerate in your workplace, unregenerate in your family, unregenerate in your book clubs, your social fence, or to those you meet on the street? You see, John had such a deep desire to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ to the world because he wanted those who did not know the truth To hear the truth, be saved by the truth, and verse 3, to have fellowship with us. As Daniel Aiken put it, John, he loved the church. He loved the believing community of Jesus Christ, and he wanted to invite everyone to become part of it. No one was excluded from his invitation. John wanted all people to join the fellowship that takes place within the church of Jesus Christ. And this must be our mentality too, Christian. Thus, it doesn't matter if someone's been to jail. We want them to join the fellowship. It doesn't matter if someone has committed past crimes. We want them to join the fellowship. It doesn't matter if someone doesn't look the part or dress the part or aren't clean-shaven like a good old clean Christian. Don't judge me. We want them to join the fellowship. There should be no partiality in terms of who we desire to share fellowship with because the answer is always everyone. However, the type of fellowship that John's talking about here It isn't the type of fellowship one has with friends on wing night. It isn't the type of fellowship one has with fellow fans cheering on a football team. It isn't the type of fellowship one has with dog lovers or game lovers or craft lovers. Instead, the basis, the nature that which grounds the church in fellowship together, verse 3, is that our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. Our fellowship church, as Gary Burge put it, it is not some passing association of people who share common sympathies for a cause, nor is it an academy where an intellectual consensus about God is discovered. It's a partnership where we believers live and grow and experience God the Father and the Son Jesus Christ together. My life in fellowship with Christ, your life in fellowship with Christ, and our lives in fellowship together. That is the fellowship that we desire to invite everyone to be part of. Thus proclaim the message of Christ to those who need the message of Christ so that they can be reconciled back to God through Christ and be in fellowship with God and with other believers via their faith in Jesus Christ. But what exactly does this Christian fellowship look like that John desires for all people to be part of? Don Graham, he illustrated it this way. He wrote, One winter, a young woman named Linda was traveling alone up the rugged highway from Alberta to the Yukon." However, Linda didn't know that she didn't travel to the Yukon alone in a rundown Honda Civic. Nevertheless, she set off where only four-wheel drives normally venture. The first evening, she found a room in the mountains near a summit and asked for a 5am. wake-up call so that she could get an early start. She didn't understand why the clerk looked surprised at the request. But when she awoke to an early morning fog so dense that it covered the mountaintop, she understood but not wanting to look foolish, she got up anyway and went down to breakfast. Two truck drivers invited her to join them, and since the place was so small, she felt obligated to sit with them. Where are you headed? One of the truckers asked. The Yukon, she said. And that little Civic? No way, these roads are too dangerous in weather like this. Well, I'm determined to try, was Linda's response. Well, then I guess we're just going to have to hug you the trucker suggested. Linda drew back. There is no way I'm going to let you touch me. No, not like that, the trucker chuckled. We'll put one truck in front of you and one behind. That way, we'll get you through the mountains. All that foggy morning, Linda followed the two red dots in front of her and had the reassurance of a big escort behind her as they made their way safely through the mountains caught in the fog of this dangerous life, we Christians, we need to be hugged by fellow Christians who know the way and can lead safely ahead of us, with others behind, gently encouraging us along so we too can pass safely. Which leaves us with this question. When you take a fellowship of saints who have all been saved by grace, reconciled back to God and have the gift of eternal salvation and who are loving each other and caring for each other and worshiping their God together, what does it naturally lead to? Joy. John writes in verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. As Howard Marshall put it, John has the heart of a pastor which cannot be completely happy so long as some of those for whom he feels responsible for are not experienced the full blessings of the gospel. So sure, John's readers, they're dealing with false teachers. And sure, they are seeing people leave the church and they are being told that what they believe isn't true. But John says, do not lose heart. Don't despair, don't lose hope. Instead, cling to the cross of Jesus Christ where our joy may be complete. And to the Christian today, yes, the world says God is dead. Yes, the world says religion is the opiate of the masses. And yes, the world says Jesus is a liar and a lunatic and certainly not, Lord. But do not lose heart. Do not let your joy wane on what the world thinks or says or does. Because the source of our joy as the body of Christ, it does not come from the world. Instead, it is grounded in our confidence in the accomplishment of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Christ, who forgave us of our sin, cleansed us of all unrighteousness, gave us the gift of eternal life, and who has ushered each one of us into fellowship with God now and forevermore. What more, brothers in in Christ and sisters in Christ, we share those benefits together. Thus we can rejoice as a community together, praise God as new creations together, and fellowship as a church together, showcasing to the world that our joy as a united body, it is complete in Jesus Christ, through whom we have eternal life, as we've been cleansed eternally by the blood of the Lamb. As we close this morning, I'll begin with the non-Christian who is here first. To the non-Christian who is here today, I really only have one request. I promise, only one. Non-Christian, join us in fellowship. No matter who you are, no matter where you came from, no matter what past sins you've committed, we desire to invite you into fellowship with us. We do. We really do. But here is the catch. In order to be in true, communal, intimate fellowship with us, you first need to be in true, communal, intimate fellowship with our God. And the only way you can be in true, communal, intimate fellowship with our God is through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, the God-man who came into the world not to call the righteous, but sinners. And how did he do that? By living a perfect, sinless, flawless, and righteous life here on earth, the type of life that we could never live. And by paying the price for our breaking of the law. Paying the price for our sins. How? By dying. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, dying for the unrighteous. You see, non-Christian, Jesus Christ, he willingly took our place and bore the wrath that we deserve for our sin. And he was crushed for our sins, crucified for our sins, and died on a cross, paying the price of our sins. But, but being that Jesus Christ, being that he is God, and being that he is sinless, and being that he was the perfect sacrifice needed to appease the wrath of a holy God toward the sins of his children, three days later, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, and offering eternal life for all who place their trust in him. So now you have the truth, non-Christian. Now you have the way. You have all the facts that are needed to be forgiven of your sins and reconciled back to God forever. But the question remains, do you trust him? Do you trust in Jesus Christ? Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you repent of your sin, that you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin the only one who can cleanse you of your sin, the only one who paid the price of your sin and can clothe you in his righteousness, in his perfect life, and reconcile you back to God forever. And today will be the day that you are forgiven of your sins. Today will be the day you receive eternal life. And today will be the day that you stand justified before God, reconciled and in perfect fellowship with him and with your joy through eternity, being complete in Jesus Christ. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you place your trust in Christ. And to the Christian who is here today, church, I've gone back and forth on exactly how I wanted to end this sermon, as there are numerous edifying points from the text that could be made. But after much thought and prayer, I will leave you with this. If you this morning Believe that eternal life was made manifest to you in the person of Jesus Christ, and you are placing your trust in his perfect life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, then proclaim it. And not only proclaim it, but show no partiality in terms of who you proclaim it to. You see, church, we have a wonderful opportunity at this hostile and confusing moment in history, here at this place, at York County, at Faith Bible Fellowship Church, we have the opportunity to proclaim the message of Christ to non-Christians and to offer them the only means of salvation and to invite them into fellowship with us. And even if they don't look like us, or talk like us, or dress like us, or act like us, or no big Christian words like us, that is okay. Proclaim Christ to them and invite them into fellowship with us because we must desire for everyone we know to be in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And you may be sitting there this morning thinking, but Pastor Wes, I'd love to, but I'm just not good at that kind of stuff. I mean, I get nervous when I speak. I don't know the big Christian words. I don't reason well or respond well when people ask me questions. What do I do? And brother Christian, sister Christian, if that is you this morning, then simply consider the language that John used today. He didn't respond to the false teachers as an academic. He didn't respond to the false teachers as a guy who claimed to have all the answers. He responded to them as as an individual who experienced the living God in the flesh, who placed his faith in the gospel and had his life transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. Thus, brother Christian, sister Christian, let your witness Let your testimony and your proclamation of the gospel be seen and heard and observed through the lens of your transformation in Jesus Christ. You are new creations in Christ. Christ has taken you from death unto eternal life through his sacrificial work on the cross and that is where your joy is now complete. Thus never ever ever be shy in showcasing the joy that you now have in Jesus Christ as you proclaim the message that saved you to the world. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body that we see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for who he truly is. Truly God and truly man. And that it is only through faith in Jesus' perfect life, death and resurrection that we are saved. That it is only through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have been reconciled back into fellowship with God and have fellowship with each other. Oh, convict our hearts this morning, God, that this message, the gospel message, that it be the message we proclaim, that it be the message we ground our fellowship in, and that it be the only message that completes our joy now and forevermore. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Proclaim it, fellowship in it, and oh, let your joy abound in it this morning, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us as a church body to let our joy abound in you. Help us not to let our joy abound in our Labor Day plans, our work, our bank accounts, the friends that we watch football with. Help our joy to abound in you, to be complete in you. Father, it is the basis of our fellowship that we love each other and care for each other and build each other up. And Father, if it completes our joy, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if it has transformed our lives, let it be the message that we proclaim. Father, we don't need to be an academic to accurately articulate the gospel message. Let us share your message with the world, with all of its truth, with all of its beauty, and showcasing to others that it has transformed our lives and it can transform theirs. Give us the confidence, we pray, and help us, Lord, to let our joy abound.